You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Dorian Abbott. Dorian is an associate professor at the University of Chicago in geophysics, and among other things, he works on climate change and the habitability of exoplanets. And I actually invited Dorian here today because um, uh, of a kind of ironic Streisand effect. I heard that, um, Dorian, one of your recent uh, a lecture that you were due to be giving at MIT, a science lecture on exoplanets and climate, has been cancelled and you've been disinvited because of your views on diversity hiring, what I call affirmative action. And I will link to your op-ed in the New York Times and your article in Common Sense um, on those views. Uh, as far as I can tell from what I've read, I, I agree with you, actually. But even if I didn't, I think that there is no reason why an unrelated science lecture should have been cancelled. And I was very interested uh, to hear more about the topic. So you very kindly sent me a copy of the lecture itself, and um, I'm here to talk to you about it. Welcome, Dorian. Thank you very much. First of all, um, yeah, let's talk about the exoplanets. Um, one thing that you uh, you and your colleague, Yun, uh, Yun Yang, have done some research into cloud cover and climate on exoplanets. And your research suggests that there may be many more potentially habitable exoplanets than previously thought. And that that is, that is because we have been discounting the possibility of looking at planets that are closer to less bright stars, M-type stars instead of G-type stars. Um, do you want to talk to, uh, um, explain a little bit about what makes a planet habitable? What makes a planet habitable is, uh, this is a definition that's often used by NASA and often used in the field, but it shouldn't be considered an exhaustive definition of habitability. But uh, the the definition that's often used is liquid water on the surface of a planet. So not covered up with ice and not locked deep in the interior, uh, but liquid water on the surface of a planet. And the reason for that is that Earth life requires liquid water at some stage in its life cycle, all Earth life. Up until now, we've been when we've been examining exoplanets to see which of them might have the potential to harbor life or which of them might have the kind of conditions that might make life, we've been looking at 
planets of with roughly similar characteristics to Earth orbiting stars that are roughly similar in characteristics to our sun. Um, but your work has, has um, you've suggested that we could change that approach. Yeah, well, it, it's not necessarily that I suggested. So our dream is to get something like the Earth orbiting something like the sun, but we just don't have the capability to uh, measure that kind of planet yet, to measure the atmospheres of that kind of planet. And so something that we will soon be able to measure the atmospheres of, like if the James Webb Space Telescope launches as planned this month, that is uh, uh, tidally locked planets orbiting small M stars. Could you explain why it's easier to detect exoplanets orbiting small M-type stars and what it means to be tidally locked? Yes. So uh, we have to back up and talk about how we detect exoplanets. And the main way we detect them is there's two ways. The first is called radial velocity. And as the planet orbits the star, it tugs the star a little bit gravitationally. And so the light that's emitted by the star gets Doppler shifted forwards and backwards, and we can detect that signal. And the smaller the star, the larger the signal, because the, a smaller star is getting tugged more. The second effect is that uh, as if, if your configuration, orbital configuration is just such that the planet passes in front of the star, then you'll get a slight diminution of the light as the planet passes in front, which we call a transit. And so uh, that decrease in the light is proportional to the area of the planet relative to the area of the star. And so if the star is smaller, you get a bigger effect. So both of those, the transit method and the radial velocity method, work better for smaller uh, stars. Right. So there's, a, there's two diminutions, right? There's a larger dip as the planet passes in front of the star, and block some of the light from the star from reaching us, and a, a smaller um, blip, a smaller kind of dip in the amount of light reaching us when the planet goes behind the star as well, right? And you can kind of see that as, when you see that as a repeating pattern, those blips in light, then you know there's a, a planet there. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the second dip would come from light reflected off of the planet back towards us. So starlight reflected off the planet back towards us. And as the planet goes behind the star, you lose that. So you get a smaller dip. And what, what you're doing is with the transit method, you're mostly looking at that first dip called the primary eclipse when the planet passes in front of the star. And if you detect two of them that look the same, then you have a uh, preliminary period and you can predict when the next one will come and you wait for it. And if you see it there and then you keep seeing it, then that is indicative of a planet. And that's something that allows us to tell the the mass of the planet, to estimate the mass or the, the radius of the planet? That one tells us about the radius of the planet relative to the radius of the star, because it gives us the uh, area of the planet relative to the area of the star. And with the radial velocity method, we can get the mass because that's about the gravitational tug that the planet exerts on the star. And so that's related to the mass. Right. So when the, the planet is passing between us and the star and it's tugging the star a little bit closer towards us, uh, am I getting this right? And when it's passing behind it, maybe tugging the star a little bit further away from us. Yes, that's exactly right. And then from the light emitted by the star, it gets Doppler shifted a little bit in frequency 
and you can detect that Doppler shift and that's and, and you see a periodic signal in the shifting and then you can infer that the star is moving forwards and backwards. Right. So one of the things you say about the the planets that are that are orbiting these smaller M star, uh, smaller M type stars. So our sun is a G type star, and these are M type dwarf stars. Is that um, because they're so much closer to the star and closer in size to the star, there are greater mutual gravitational effects, and so they are much more likely to become tidally locked in the same way that the moon is tidally locked to the earth. So um, one face of the planet always faces the star. Is that correct? That's correct. I only, can I ask you, what, what is your field? Um, I, I, I have a PhD in English literature. Because so. I'm, I'm extremely impressed with uh, how much you've picked up of the science here and how you're able to re-explain it pretty much exactly right. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I have read a lot of science fiction, <laughs> so I think that has helped. Um, but could you say more about the cloud effect? So um, one thing you talk about is that because of the way the clouds are working on those tidally locked planets, they are more likely to be habitable than we would think given their distance from their relative star, uh, respective stars. Yeah, so this configuration you just described, the tidally locked configuration, essentially what it would be like to be on such a planet is there's no there's no days. So wherever you are on the planet, the sun is always in the same position. It's always at the same angle relative to the horizon. So for half the planet, it's always nice t- nighttime. For the other half of the planet, it's always daytime. And where it's daytime, it's always the same time of day, uh, solar time. And so there's a spot on the planet that it's always high noon with the sun directly overhead. And we call that the substellar spot. And that should be the hottest place on the planet, uh, much hotter than the equator on Earth. And the interesting thing is that when, when, you, when you model the geophysical fluid dynamics, if you heat up one spot, you end up warming the air there and it rises and you get deep convection. And what happens when you get convection on a planet like Earth or with an atmosphere like Earth is that you get clouds forming. So the moist, hot air near the surface rises up and condenses and you get lots of thick clouds. And so what happened in our model when we did this was we got a huge patch of clouds right at the substellar point. The clouds have a high reflectivity. They're very white. And so, and that's where all the sun was shining. And so the total reflectivity or albedo of the planet went way up. And so the clouds ended up reflecting a lot of the starlight coming into the planet from the central star and cooling the planet off. And so you were able to put the planet a lot closer to the star than you otherwise would have been and keep liquid water and keep it from turning into something like Venus. Right. And I think you said the clouds also work to... um, the clouds in general also work to disperse heat so they can uh, take heat from the day side, from the substellar, the side that's facing the star, to the anti-stellar, the side away from the star, the nighttime side, and vice versa. It's less the clouds, and that's actually just the atmosphere. So the atmosphere can move heat around, the, the gas. You can warm up the gas and move heat to the night side and, and have it give the heat off there. The other mechanism is you can evaporate 
water on the day side and then transport the water vapor to the night side and it can condense there, releasing heat. So the, between those two mechanisms, you can the atmosphere can move heat from the day side to the night side. So say a bit more about why this is important, um, how, this, how this changes how we see exoplanets. Well, so what this does, so the closer a planet is to the star, the easier it is to detect and to follow up and study its atmosphere for, for some of the reasons that we talked about before. And so what this means is that a lot of planets that are closer to their star are going to be easier to detect and study their atmosphere. Uh, and then they could be Earth-like. And so that means there's more targets to study for uh, potential being potentially Earth-like, particularly with this new instrument, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be perfect for looking at planets orbiting M-stars. Now, there's one caveat that I should mention. We don't actually know yet that planets orbiting M-stars have atmospheres. And so that's the first thing that James Webb Space Telescope is going to test, whether this kind of planet actually can even have an atmosphere. But once that preliminary analysis is done, if we find that they can have an atmosphere, then this provides lots of targets to look for signatures of biological activity. Right, because there are many, many more M stars than G stars, right? So That's correct, about 10 times more. I mean, these planets are, are far away, I, I'm guessing. I'm guessing we're not, we're not going to be traveling to them anytime soon. Um, no, we're going to be traveling to them. <laughs> but interestingly, Iona, the nearest star to us, Proxima Centauri, is an M star that has a roughly Earth-sized planet, a little bit bigger, orbiting in the sort of configuration that it could have these cloud effects. However, the nearest one is 4.3 light years away, so it's pretty far away. But they do, I mean, one of the things you talk about is that they do provide a model for um, for how Earth's climate might might develop in the future if, if global warming continues. Well, that's a really interesting aspect of this kind of work. So our biggest source of uncertainty in forecasting climate change is the behavior of clouds. And the reason is that clouds are a, such a small scale uh, relative to the entire planet. So it's very hard to model the entire planet and model clouds at the same time. So when we, we have different climate models, there's you know a dozen or a couple dozen of them ar- around the planet, around Earth, and we, uh, we run them and we can reproduce the climate of the past 150 years, but then they give different results in the future. And the reason is mostly because of clouds. And what's interesting is the different models also make slightly different predictions for what these M-star planets cloud should look like. And so with astronomical observations, we might be able to discern between them and potentially say, well, this model is doing a bit better in this warm climate regime than this model, and maybe we should trust its results a little bit more for future climate on Earth. That's really interesting. Um, given that there might be, uh, so, so I guess we don't know, but given that potentially that this suggests that there may be more Earth 2.0s out there, I want to ask you about the uh, your views on the Fermi paradox. So I know that you, um, or at least I listened to a debate in which you were arguing that life uh, life on Earth may not be unique. Life may not be the only planet with Earth with life. So, um, why? Where are the aliens? 
Yeah. So the Fermi paradox, it, let's just state what, what it is. So Fermi was a scientist who was at a variety of different places and ultimately at the University of Chicago. And one day at lunch, apparently in the middle of lunch, he just said, you know, where are they? And the funny thing is that everyone at the lunch table knew he was talking about the aliens. And the question is, there seem to be a lot of planets out there. As far as we know, life got started really early on Earth. And uh, if you develop interstellar technology, you should be able to colonize the whole galaxy quickly. And so the question is, why haven't aliens come to Earth yet? Assuming, of course, that they haven't come to Earth yet, which we don't have strong evidence that we've been visited by aliens, even though there are sometimes reports of this. <laughs> so uh, so basically, that's that's the paradox. That's the question. And there are different potential solutions. And I was in a debate, actually, a relevant debate, where I was arguing that I was arguing that there would be life everywhere, but it might be hard to for us to detect it, and maybe it's hard for the life to travel between stars. But the other side just argued that there was there wouldn't be life on other planets; that life might be really rare, and that sort of shocked me. This was about ten years ago, and uh, I started to take their perspective more seriously. And so the basic argument that they made is: we don't know how the origin of life works. We have no way to do it in the lab and things that are actually hard that that took longer in geological history than the origin of life such as um, the advent of multicellularity we can do stuff like that in the lab so it's strange that it's so hard to do the origin of life in the lab or anything like it and so maybe it's just really hard for the origin of life to happen and maybe we're really really rare and so that's at least a distinct possibility but these are sort of speculative perspectives and hopefully within the next 50 to 100 years, we'll actually have data about whether exo a lot of exoplanets are inhabited. And we'll either know that there is life out there or else we'll know that it's pretty rare and we'll be able to quantitatively say how rare from our data. Um, if there is life out there, I mean, what's your feeling about why, where the aliens actually are? Do you think that the life is um, uh, non non-intelligent life, i.e. Uh, back, mostly bacteria or other creatures that aren't at, haven't reached a stage of development at which they would be able to contact us? Or do you think that there is any chance that the great fi filter idea might be true, that at a certain level of civilization, civilizations tend to destroy themselves? Well, so here's a couple thoughts on that general topic. The first is, in Earth history, we had billions of years of single single cell organisms, and only uh, you know half a billion years or so of animal life. So even on Earth, most of the time, life has not been multicellular and animal life. Then, if you look at animal life, we've only got one technological species, truly technological species. So you know, cows are doing great, right? They don't need technology and intelligence to reproduce and uh, be successful from an evolutionary standpoint. And so it may just be that intelligence is not that ad advantageous, at least the intelligence that leads to radio telescopes. And maybe there'll be lots of other planets that have life that's not intelligent, lots of cows and stuff. But there is this possibility of the great filter that's in front of us that we might destroy ourselves through environmental degradation or, or warfare. And 
uh, it's a scary possibility, but we, you know, well, that what would really establish that would be if we found lots of uh, extinct civilizations out there. If we somehow found evidence that there were lots of civilizations that existed and then killed themselves off. And if we were able to find that, I think it would force a reassessment of our behavior. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're sort of hoping, are we hoping to find that or hoping not to find that? I think if, if we're going to define what we're hoping for, the best possible scenario is no life at all. So, uh, if you're, if we don't know whether the great filter is in front of us or behind us, we want to push it as far behind us as possible in terms, if we want to be optimistic about the future of life on earth. So the most optimistic thing about the future of life on earth is if we never find life on an exoplanet. If we find lots of other planets that have intelligent life that went extinct, then that's bad news for us. It means that we're likely to also drive ourselves extinct relatively quickly. Um, this is very ex extremely uh, speculative, but um, I have a few questions from people on Twitter, which I'm I'm actually also interested to hear your answer to. My friend Matthew asks, um, "What do you think a realistic timescale and strategy for colonizing exoplanets would be?" I know you're a theoretical um, physicist rather than a um, a NASA engineer. Yeah. So the problem is. Our, we're currently growing, our uh, economy and technological capabilities are growing exponentially. So it's a little difficult to uh, predict where we'll be in the future, given that growth rate. Uh, but I would say a thousand years. That that seems soon. I mean, it's a, a bit, it will be a bit late for me, but um, that seems like a very, like quite an optimistic um, estimate. Um, yeah, I mean, that sort of timescale, if we, you know, people have designs for interstellar spacecraft that they think would work. Uh, of course, no one's, there's all sorts of problems to get you from here to building such a spacecraft. But I would say something like a thousand years. But, you know, someone like Elon Musk, who, act, you know, I do like theory calculations, uh, it, he's such a, he's a very practical person he would probably be able to answer a question like that better uh, how legitimate do you feel how useful do you feel the drake equation is given how speculative many of the variables in that equation are and maybe you could say a bit more about which you think are the most uh are the biggest unknowns well so clearly the biggest unknown is the time scale for life to arise or the probability of life arising on a given planet. And what's interesting, there was an analysis that I really liked about three to five years ago by a group in, uh, in England. And I'm for, I, I forget the names of the first authors, but first author, but what they did was they took all of the parameters and they did a realistic, they tried to quantify the uncertainty on each of the parameters. So rather than just picking your favorite value, they tried to quantify the uncertainty. And then they address the Fermi paradox using a sort of Monte Carlo or a random draw from all these parameters within the uncertainty. And what was interesting was that they found that even if you think it's likely that life arises quickly, since we're so uncertain about the timescale for life to arise, you end up with a pretty decent chance, like about 50%, that we're alone in the galaxy. And so I think using the Drake equation like that, including the uncertainty on the parameters, it can be an effective tool. 
But just picking your favorite value can be pretty misleading for each of the parameters. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about von Neumann-style self-replicating probes? Uh, I mean, so basically this would be the idea that you would send robots to another planet and then they would create more robots that would go to another planet? Yes. I guess the question would be, what, what's the motivation? Why are you doing that? Um, well, I, I think it would depend on whether you were able to communicate information back to Earth or whether you were able to send information back faster than you could send people. So the idea is to sort of uh, lay the groundwork for future colonization. Um, yes, or, or um, to provide knowledge of the kind that you're providing with the exoplanets that will help us to solve problems here on Earth. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, you know, the travel time is so long, I think you've got to solve your problems on Earth first. But the idea of, of by the way, you know, I just thought of, you know about all this decolonial stuff? Yes. I wonder what the decolonial types think about the fact that we're talking about colonizing exoplanets. There have actually been some, um, uh, there has been some work on this, on um, uh, what it will mean to change uh if we land on Mars, for example, what kinds of effects we w might have on Mars and whether this is a good thing. And um, we published an article about that in ARIO magazine uh, quite a while back, but I will link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I have a friend named Jacob Hawk Misra who sometimes works on that stuff. Yeah, this is, this is something that comes up in, uh, in um, the novels um, Red Mars, Green Mars and Blue Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson which I was thinking about a lot as I was listening to your talk because um, Robinson describes in the last of his novels, he describes human beings settling Mercury and how they deal with the problem of that Mercury is tidally locked. They base, it's, uh, they basically, sorry, Mercury is, is not tidally locked. It's uh, rotating very fast in its axis, but of course only parts of the planet uh, well, in this fantasy could be made habitable. And they solve this problem by having their entire civilization in a kind of train on wheels going around the planet at a constant speed. So they're always at exactly the same distance from the sun mm. on, the, on the Mercury planet. But that uh, series of novels is actually, a, um, a large part of that is actually about the civil wars between the people who want an unspoiled uh, Mars and those who want to completely terraform Mars. It's interesting. So anyways, uh, I think the idea of sending robots to colonize in advance is an interesting idea. Another related idea would be that the robots could carry uh, human gametes, sperm and eggs, and assuming that you could grow a human without a womb, which we can't currently do, potentially, you know, that would be a way to transport humans. But it ultimately does come back to the ultimate motivation for all this. And that's another answer for the Fermi paradox is that maybe there's just no reason to go to other stars. Maybe, you know, it's, there's, there's not enough motivation. And so civilizations just uh, learn how to live on their planet and enjoy it. Mm, that seems like a very uh, sad idea. Um I, I wanted to ask if you're familiar with um, Brownlee and Brownlee and Ward. I think are the authors. The book Rare Earth. 
Um, and they make a very strong argument for the idea that there cannot be life outside of the earth. I wondered if you'd read that book and whether those ideas have been updated since then. Yeah, so their thesis is actually that uh, that simple life could be common, mm. but that complex life is probably rare. Yes. And the argument, the sort of rhetorical style is they point out lots of things that could be rare about earth. And then they try to argue that that those things are important or critical for the development of complex life. And then therefore they conclude that complex life is rare. I think it's an interesting argument. It's, it's a very speculative area. I think what's good about that book is that a lot of people in the astrobiology sort of a field got into it because they love Star Wars and Star Trek and they want to find the aliens. And so there's a kind of bias in the field in favor of that we're going to find lots of extra extraterrestrial life. And so it's useful to have someone pushing back and saying, well, actually, I'm not so sure, guys. Here are the counter arguments. The ultimate um, decision maker on this is just going to be empirical evidence. So we can sit around and speculate all day. Brown Brownlee's ideas are totally plausible. The people who are saying there's going to be life everywhere, they have plausible arguments too, but we just don't know until we get the data. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work on climate change. How are those those two aspects of your work um, connected? And um, what do you think are the most important misunderstandings um, about anthropogenic ch- climate change among the general public? Yeah, so I don't usually actually... I don't do that much work on climate change. I work on specific aspects. So I've worked a bit on sea ice, Arctic sea ice, and on hurricanes. Uh, But I do teach a large course on climate change at the University of Chicago, which has 500 to 700 students per year. And so I am familiar with the main arguments. I guess what I would say in terms of clearing up up issues for the general public, I, I could just say a few things about what we definitely, definitely know. And so the first is that we know just from surface temperature measurements that people have written down that over the past 170 years, the planet has increased by 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit in the global mean surface temperature. So we're very confident about that. We also know uh, just from measuring the atmospheric CO2 since 1960, that the atmospheric CO2 concentration has increased from from about 315 parts per million to about 415 today. And we can look before 1960, we don't have measurements in the air, but we can look in air bubbles trapped in ice. And we know that about 200 years ago, it was only 280 parts per million. So those things were definitely clear on. We also know that that increase in carbon dioxide is roughly what you would expect to cause the temperature change that we've observed just based on radiative physics, the same kind of stuff that we use for cell phones and radio uh, and all that kind of stuff. It's the same physics. It's basic physics, you know, more than 100 years old. And so it's all consistent. The story is all consistent. We also have no other explanation for why the temperature would have increased by 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit over the last 170 years. Where it gets a little more uncertain is what's going to happen in the future. Okay, so so everything I just said, everyone has to accept if they're going to uh, use approach this based on the empirical evidence, but we do have uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future. And so to me, that uncertainty, 
I, I suppose I have a little bit more of a conservative perspective on this. That uncertainty um, makes me nervous about doing a giant experiment on the planet that we don't know what's going to happen when we do it. And so to me, that's sort of the best argument for reducing our CO2 emissions. Thank you. I was also quite, I, I'm returning to the planets again. Um, well, to planets other than Earth. Um, I was very intrigued to find that you have also been working on climate modeling, uh, well, not climate modeling, but um, the basic conditions on uh, rogue planets and the possibility that a rogue planet might harbor life. Um, for those who haven't watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine, could you explain what a rogue planet is and, and what that work is about? Yeah, so we have evidence of uh, exoplanets in very close orbits to their stars. And the main way we think this could happen is that you could have a couple of planets and one of them could get ejected into space. The other one that stayed away from the solar system that it's in, the other one that stayed in the solar system would have a very eccentric orbit that would slowly be damped out and it would end up really close to the star. And so these provide evidence that planets get chucked out into interstellar space. Now, uh, there's something called gravitational microlensing, which is a tricky observational technique that can detect these rogue planets. And it seems to be finding lots of them, like maybe as much as one per star out there, planets just floating around in space. So we have motivation for considering what the climate on such a planet would be like. What happened with that paper that that you're mentioning is my colleague Eric Eric Wolf and I Eric Switzer and I in this case sorry I confused him with someone else Eric Switzer uh, we asked the question what we do in physics often is something called asymptotics we try to push a process to its limit and see uh, what it would behave like in order to learn more about the process we said what you know what's the asymptotic limit of habitability what what if you had a planet like Earth with no star an interstellar planet like Earth, could you maintain uh, habitable conditions under an ice layer that insulated you? And what we found was that for Earth, just the geothermal heat flux can't quite keep all of the uh, ice from freezing, all of the ocean from freezing. So if Earth were ejected into interstellar space, the ocean would freeze over and you'd have no more liquid water. However, for a planet that was slightly larger with or with a little more water or a little more geothermal heat flux, you could end up for billions of years having a ocean underneath an ice layer where potentially you could have life exist. Mm. Yeah, thank you. This is exactly the one of one of the kind of um scenarios that's that in Star Trek. So it's very pleasing to me to hear about it being studied in in real astrophysics. I know that your time is very limited, but maybe uh, just in, in, the last, um, uh, in the last minutes of this podcast, we could talk a little bit about um, what you think um, the atmosphere in... Ha, do you feel that the atmosphere in physics departments has changed recently? And um, in what kind... Do you feel that you are... that professors are under undue pressures from both from perhaps from left from wokery and perhaps uh, on the right from climate deniers climate change deniers 
are you feeling a chilling uh, effect at university departments? Um, and if so, how? And what do you think people should know about that? Yes, I think the answer to that question is yes. Everyone in academia is feeling a chilling effect right now. Uh, I, I don't think that's a surprise. That won't be a surprise to your listeners. I think what's a little more surprising is that it's coming into the science departments. Uh, you mentioned one mechanism, which is climate denial from from traditionally from the right. Another mechanism traditionally from the right, which has more to do with biology, it relates to creationism, young earth creationism. Th that tends that that tends to come up more in K through 12 education than in university context, although sometimes it does as well. Uh, and from the left, it's these issues of, of wokeism. The, the Trojan horse that is used to get those, to introduce those into the science has been diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Uh, particularly, th these are used as a way to screen out people who have divergent views on, on these issues. Uh, for example, with diversity, equity, and inclusion statements uh, that have to be made, sort of an ideological allegiance in order to obtain a job, and also just through, um, just through job advertisements that make it clear that no one will be hired unless they hold these opinions. And then typically, there are sort of deans and deanlets within a university that are effectively diversocrats, diversity-crats. And they attempt to, uh, uh, to enforce a sort of ideological uniformity when these issues are discussed. And they often ensure that some sort of representative of the diversity, equity, and inclusion is included on every hiring committee so that uh, you know, this perspective is used to screen out people who, who might have divergent views. Uh, a, rela a related issue is if someone expresses divergent views, they are often subjected to ostracism, attacks on social media, uh, letters of denunciation, and calls for them to be fired. The result is, even though a relatively small number of people are targeted in this way, the vast majority, according to surveys, are restricting their speech. This is important because people with different opinions on these issues should be able to express their views. But it's also important because science is a creative enterprise. And if you go around uh, having to tiptoe around everything you say, it's harder to get into a creative way of thinking and actually do your work. I was also thinking with regard to this that the kinds of um, alternatives that you can have if you are in the arts and humanities, for example, um, aren't just aren't as feasible if you do science. If you do science, you need generally access to labs and teams and equipment. You can't really do science as a rogue planet ejected from the university star system. Well, it's hard, it's hard to do that. Although, of course, there's the examples of people like Einstein who, who have pulled it off. But yeah, I mean, a related issue is science is funded by the public. The public is uh, by and large not in support of the woke position by a supermajority. Uh, the public wants science that will produce results. I don't think the average person in the public cares if if someone's going to get find a cure for cancer. I don't think they care if that person is a Trump supporter or not. 
but effectively, someone who's a Trump supporter cannot uh, say that publicly and maintain their career. And so I think that's that's one of the reasons that this is so important is that science should be, you know, should respect the views of the public and we should we should be doing a merit based system so that we can produce the best science and deliver on the money that's been invested in us. Thanks, Dorian. I'm I'm going to finish by asking you a question I ask all my guests. Who do you think outside your own field is the most important person for people to be listening to? And who do you think would be the most interesting person to interview? Yeah, so there's someone who has the pseudonym Charles Pincourt. He's an engineering professor in North America who has been studying the sort of woke takeover of a lot of academic departments for the past five to 10 years. And he recently wrote a book called Counter Wokecraft that I've been studying that's really, really interesting. And what he does is it's sort of a nice little explainer for people who don't really know about the critical social justice perspective. And it sort of says, okay, these are the beliefs. These are the methods that get used. And here are counter tactics you can use. And so I would recommend Charles Pincourt and I would recommend to everybody his book, Counter Wokecraft. Thank you. I will check it out. Um, Dorian, I know that you um, have a hard limit. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed having tea with you virtually. <laughs> and uh, I'm really impressed with your ability to process information so far out of your field. And it speaks to how important it is for people to be broadly curious and how uh, how capable people are at learning about things in different fields if, if they work at it uh, and put in the effort. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dorian. And thank you for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful week. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC. Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week. <laughs>